Welcome to the Altmetric Podcast, where we bring you the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. I'm your host, at Lucy Goodchild. It's difficult to miss Twitter these days, what with tweets from some very high-profile people making the headlines almost daily. Do you share ideas, questions, content in 280 characters? If you're a researcher and you're not on Twitter, you might want to take notes. In a new paper, five tweeters share 10 simple rules for getting started on Twitter as a scientist. In this episode of the Altmetric Podcast, we talk to one of the authors to find out what makes Twitter so great for academics. Whatever your view of Twitter, it isn't always painted in the best light in the media. It's often portrayed as a place of frivolity and fun, and more recently, fake news. Yet it seems the platform has a lot more to offer than entertainment. People have fallen in love, been arrested, made friends, and been hired and fired. According to the researchers behind the paper in PLOS Computational Biology, Twitter could transform your career as a scientist. The team of tweeters from the Netherlands looked at their own experiences using Twitter and stories from others and came up with 10 rules for scientists who want to use Twitter to advance their academic careers. They've been popular, particularly on Twitter, earning the paper an optometric attention score of 617. In this episode, we hear from one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Felina Hermans, an associate professor at Leiden University. I wanted to start with you. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, of course. So my name is Feline Hermans. I'm a social professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands. I've been there for about a year and a half now. Before that, I worked at TU Delft, also in the Netherlands, for 10 years. Uh, I have a background in computer science. My um, master's degree is in computer science and then my PhD is in software engineering. But recently, for the past five years, I've been mainly focusing on education. So my research is about programming education, how to teach programming to kids. Uh, and then we look at both young kids, we've done stuff with preschoolers even, but mainly we focus on what in the US you would call middle school age. So from 10 to about 15, that's the age that's, uh, that we are most interested in. Although we also do some stuff with university students because we teach university students. So that's a good opportunity to do some measurements there as well. But we're mainly interested in these young kids and understanding what can they do? What can they handle cognitively? What skills do they need in terms of math or reading or metacognitive skills in order for them to be able to do programming? Wow, cool. And so the paper includes your and your co-authors' personal experiences with Twitter. What has your experience been? Yeah, so Twitter is so weird because it's such a different thing than when I started. So I joined Twitter in 2009, which is a, a, a lifetime ago. Um, and then in, in very, very beginning, no one really knew what it was. It was a little bit like we had this platform in the Netherlands called Hives, which was like a Dutch version of Facebook. So it was a little bit like this where you could chat with your friends, but it's different because you could also chat with random people that you didn't really know in real life. Uh, so in the beginning, it was just really like figuring out what is this. But after a while, I think after two or three years, I really started to use Twitter mainly in a professional sense in the sense that I started to share stuff about programming and software. And I started to follow people that were also into 
doing things about programming and software. And then it turned out that for me, it was a really good way to stay up to date. This is also some of the things we talk about in the paper, to stay up to date with what other people in the field do, because yeah, you know, there's so many research papers. You're, you're not going to read all papers. You're not even going to read all papers in your subfield because there's just too many. But then if you follow a few relevant people in your field, then they will tell you what the interesting papers are. And then you just read the ones that they tweet about. And also what we also talk about in the paper, it's a really nice way to keep up with the social network of researchers. So you go to a conference and you meet sort of the same people every year. The way this works for people that don't have Twitter or the way this worked before Twitter is you see people once a year and then you see them the next year. And then it's like, hey, how have you been? But now, if you follow a few people on Twitter, they will tell you, oh, I'm, I'm, this is stuff I share as well. I'm starting an experiment. So I, I will like make a picture of a questionnaire that I'm going to give to kids. So people know what I've been working on. And that, that really eases social interaction when you're at a conference. People will know, know your work, know what you're up to. If people read your papers, if they review your papers, they might already have some background of what you're doing. So that might help in that sense. So, that's mainly been my experience. First, it was like hanging out with weird people. And then it turned out to be a way to stay up to date with people in the programming and programming education research community. You've already sort of touched on it, I think, here, but you described Twitter as a, a career incubator. What do you mean by that? It's a little bit like a democratization of attention. If you look at academia in the traditional sense, who get most, gets most attention is the most senior people because they get offered like a keynote at a conference and everyone listens because it's a plenary slot. So they get most attention and younger people get less attention because if it's just your first paper or you're not well known, they will just, the conference organizers will program you in like the biggest conference in software engineering has like six or seven parallel tracks and you're just one of them. So attention isn't divided equally by design and people that are more famous are more likely to have their papers read. But Twitter sort of levels that because I have more followers than our dean or our department head or people that in other dimensions clearly outrank me don't have the reach I have. So in that sense, Twitter can really help you um, get attention that in the traditional sense of academia, you wouldn't be entitled to if you catch my drift because you haven't yet earned the status to have that audience, but you can have that audience if you are clearly adding value. So people follow me because I share stuff that they're interested in. So I've earned that audience in a different way than academic merits. And in that sense, then it can really help you. Of course, we don't, this is also what we say in the paper, we don't really have evidence that this is true. But for example, when I started my new job in Leiden, the first day I got to have like a five minute coffee break with the dean to say hi. And they was like, oh, Felina, I know you because I read your blog. That's probably not true for everyone. And I'm definitely not saying that they offered me this position because the dean reads my blog. But clearly it didn't hurt either that he was aware of who I was, that he was aware of the type of research what I was doing. And then my resume landed on his desk and I wasn't like, oh, who's this person? It's like, yeah, I know this person from Twitter. So clearly we don't, we don't really know that it's helping, but all of us authors have the feeling that there are these small concrete cases in which the fact that you are well-known in a certain way has advanced your career in a certain sense. And so your co-authors had similar experiences? Yes, yes. Like being invited to a workshop is something that I think Veronica shares. 
finding co-authors also on Twitter. So some of the co-authors of, well, we have, all the co-authors of this paper have found each other on Twitter, but also in other, uh, in other collaborations, people have written papers together with people they knew from Twitter, which also are career opportunities. This is kind of a bit left field, this paper, I think, from what your normal <laughs> research is, right? So what were you hoping to achieve with it? And why did you decide to publish this? Yeah, so we, we didn't really hope to achieve anything. I mean, we've all had a good laugh about this paper attracting so much more attention than all the real stuff that we've been doing, all five of us. <laughs> so we, we didn't hope to achieve anything with it, like academically. Well, we did think, I, I also really think that Twitter is a place where if you want to, you can find you can find people that think about stuff about research in the same way that you do. Because often, as I said, also this hierarchy of who has power, often older people with different backgrounds that are very powerful in the university also have different opinion on things. So the younger generation might have a really different opinion about like work-life balance, about open access, for example. And it, it's, it can be nice to organize it that way, to talk with people on Twitter, just like, oh, it's, it's Friday, 5 p.m., I'm going home. And that other people would say, oh, yeah, that's totally normal. We do the same. I'm go, going horseback riding or knitting or hiking or whatever. Whereas in your institution, the culture might be different because the culture might be ruled by different people. So we definitely think Twitter can be sort of a, a safe space to hang out with people, to chat about your experiences with people that are going through the same but are distant enough that you can really share your thoughts with them. So that are definitely ways in which we thought, well, Twitter can be helpful. And also, well, the first fact I made about the democratization, this is also something that I just, I want them to also have this experience because when I was a PhD student, being on Twitter really helped me find stuff and helps me express myself and helps me gain a profile. This is something that I would like younger uh, researchers to also have access to this network of support and interesting information and career perspectives. Just like you should take it somewhat seriously. Don't think, oh, you know, of course there's a downside, but you shouldn't necessarily only see Twitter as a waste of time, just looking at cat pictures all day. There is value to be had. And we just wanted to give young researchers a few concrete steps. This is what you do. Think about these things and that might make it easier for you to get started on Twitter. That was that was our goal. So concrete steps, you came up with 10 rules that scientists can follow. What are your favorites? Yeah, so one that I really like is that it is okay to bring your personality and your personal life to Twitter. So even though I use Twitter mainly professionally. I also sometimes occasionally share some things about my hobbies. Like I like running and I run long distance races. And sometimes I tweet about these things as well. Uh, My partner is making bread in the quarantine because he needs to be occupied. I'm making jokes that, um, that he's not doing it seriously enough because he's just changing random stuff. And then I was advising him. This was a tweet I sent like three days ago. I was advising him to keep a lab notebook because he needs to, you know, make all the changes and he needs to approach it scientifically. So I think I like that the fact that clearly there's a balance and you don't want to only share cat pictures, but also part of Twitter, what I like about it is that you also get a sneak peek into the social life of other scientists and you see how they approach work-life balance. You see, do they have kids? Do they have hobbies? How do they challenge that? So that's definitely, I think my favorite rule is that it's not LinkedIn. It's not, it's not really professional. You, you can bring some of yourself to Twitter, 
and that is where the value also lies. So that's definitely my my favorite rule, I would say. I love that. Do you have any others that leap to mind? Interface with real life. That's also one I really like. Twitter is this weird, sometimes this, this wavy behavior in terms of tweets where if nothing is happening in your life, you might tweet, I might tweet one fresh tweet a day and a few retweets. But then if I'm at a conference, I tweet a lot. So I use the hashtag for a conference. And I also, uh, I tell people that I'm following like, oh, I, I'm going to go to this conference. Maybe there's some a session that you were specifically interested in and in the conference slides i put my always put my twitter handle on my first slide and i always say hello i'm feline my twitter name is also feline if you're tweeting about the session mention me or use the hashtag so i can see what people are tweeting so i encourage people to tweet so this interacts with real life it goes both ways on twitter i tell what i'm doing and then if, if i'm in a conference i'll also i'll put my twitter handle or my name uh, badge if it isn't there already so that is also a good way to find people that you're interested in following you just look at who else is tweeting on the hashtag of this conference and then you can that will generally be people in the same subfield of science as you that you will probably be interested in and of course, but I guess you know this, we just picked the 10 rules because this is a format that PLOS One already has. So that was uh, that was rule seven that I also really liked. Twitter has changed a lot over the last 10 years. What changes do you think will come about and do you think it will change the way scientists do and can interact with each other and with the platform? Oh, that's a great question. So yeah, so Twitter has been struggling forever Firstly, to make money. Secondly, with fake accounts. And now, again, also in uh, in the corona crisis with fake news. I mean, you've seen the Dutch news, maybe. People are literally setting cell towers afire because of stuff they read on the internet. And of course, the internet there isn't only Twitter. But definitely some of the features of Twitter make it way easier to spread this kind of information. Because accounts don't need to be connected to real people, which... It also has a benefit because then you can create an account for a tool or a research group. So you totally see why these benign features are used in different ways. And I think from many, many parts of the design of Twitter, you can see it was created by people that never have to deal with harassment, aka white men from rich, from rich families, not black women, for example. Uh, you can just see that that lots of the, especially in, initially, like all the DMs were open and you could just tag people in random messages. I think they are trying to change that. For example, now you can limit what replies to a tweet are seen and you can block people and put people on a block list. But ultimately the, the way Twitter is, is everything is open and everyone can see anything. And that is great. You can't really take that idea and then duct tape a little bit of security on it. That's not going to work. The whole core idea is openness. In the beginning, you had all the weirdos and you, you didn't know how everything worked. But that was the benefit because you could just see everything from everyone. That's what makes it different from Facebook, where you have to mutually friend each other to be able to see something. Even though, of course, now Facebook also has this idea of following rather than friending. So I think at its core... What makes it great also makes it very vulnerable to, to fake news and also to harassment. So I know there's also already been this research that female journalists will interact with social media less because of harassment. I think this, hasn't, this study hasn't been done for female scientists, but you know it doesn't need to because we will know the answer. I'm sure that 
if they don't pay attention that they will disengage some people which are more, uh, more likely to be people in minority groups or women and stuff like that. I don't think there's much to be done. So maybe if, if Twitter gets worse or doesn't get better, then it might limit the opportunities for some people. And as always will be a source of furthering inequalities that already exists rather than the democratizing power as we like it to be, or as I would like it to be at least. Of course, this paper had a great response on Twitter. You had 863 tweets registered by Altmetric and an Altmetric attention score of 617. It's probably a daft question, but how did you do this? Firstly, one of our uh, one of our co-authors has a an amazing number of followers. The only guy has like sixty thousand followers, and I think all of the authors have more than thousand followers. So clearly, just spreading this at in our own Twitter accounts was really helpful. And then, of course, I mean, it's sort of like preaching to the choir. People that really like Twitter, and maybe people that have been bullied a little bit in their institution for being on Twitter all the time by deans or colleagues that don't really see the value, instead of saying, hey, I like Twitter, they can now say, hey, these few scientists from the Netherlands, look, they made a paper about a plus one paper. Now it's real science. So clearly people that like Twitter with lots of followers started to also share the paper to, to all of their followers. And it's a, it's a nice message to spread. No one, no one is heard by this message. And some people might feel very seen by this paper. So I, I guess that was the reason and also, of course, it's, it's a fun thing to share, especially now. I mean, it, this, this paper started just before the corona, but now with all the, all the bad news, and then you have news that is a few scientists wrote a paper on how to tweet. It's like, oh, that's, that's just a, a retweet. It's, it's just because it's so fun and, and so benign in a sense, and so, so small, but yet fun. So we didn't really do anything. This is the sad part. With some of my other papers why I wanted to get attention because we had findings that were pretty, pretty cool. You know, you have the university write a nice press release and then maybe you get one interview from a local newspaper and you're already like, yes, I got an interview. We didn't do anything. The university didn't have a press release or I didn't even put with some papers, I put like a, a page on my website like this is the paper. Here's a normal people, not scientists summary. Here's the paper, here's the data set. So there's like a landing page to link to. We didn't do any of this. But what a great result for this that, you know, and, and probably unexpected that people felt heard and seen. Yeah, yeah, probably unexpected in a sense. So we, we, we also still hope, and we don't know, of course, because we see that people that spread it now, the people that are already on Twitter. So that's nice, but we're not really changing their mind. It's more like we're validating what they already thought. Hopefully, of course, also this paper will reach people that just started on Twitter, or maybe it will encourage them to make an account and get started now. That's, that's what we really hope to achieve. So it might be nice if these super spreaders that are already convinced by what we're saying also bring in, and this might take a little while, young people that we are actually interested in reaching. And on that note, we always ask people at the end, what would be your number one tip to other researchers who want to promote their work? Um, you've obviously shared a lot here and your paper has, I mean, it's a rich source of information about how people can do this, but what would be your number one tip for people? Yes, so definitely this landing page. So if you say, here's my research, and then the link is, I don't know, ResearchGate or the website of your university where the PDF of the paper is, you have very little control over what happens. 
you, you don't know who clicks it, for example. You don't know how people find it. So if you make a landing page for the paper, that's really also easy to share. So my, yeah, my website is myfirstname.com, so that's nice. So I can just have myfirstname.com slash, and then I have a paper about code reading, for example, slash code reading. It's a landing page. So this means it's a WordPress website for me. It means I can see how people got there. I can see that they get there from Twitter or from Googling or from the university websites. On the page, then I have a small summary that's in my case often aimed at teachers because I want teachers to use my research. So I say, hey, this is a summary for researchers. And then the PDF is all the way there in the back, but mainly that's, you know, most people might not be interested in that. So having such a landing page will really give you control and a deeper understanding of what happens. And it's something that's easier to share. And this is especially true if you want to reach non-scientists with your work. Because if, you, if you're just interested in sharing your work with scientists, then you can just share a PDF of the paper. But if your goal is professional programmers or educators, like in our case, then if they link to a paper, they might think, oh, this is not for me. But then you link them to the landing page and then they read everything. And they're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And then maybe they will still read the PDF. So maybe this would be my, uh, my number one tip. Brilliant tip. I think a lot of people will be doing that now. Thank you so much for sharing your story and I will uh, see you on Twitter. Awesome. Oh, thanks for the interview. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another headline-grabbing study. Curious what sort of attention your article's getting? Find out at altmetric.com. Until next time.